A church, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 8, and if there's any kids that, uh, parents, you'd like them to go to age-specific teaching that's offered now. If you're using one of those chair Bibles, we will be on page 492 in those blue Bibles, so you could open up with me uh, there. Last week, most of you were here. Uh, you'll remember we looked at a passage that, um, at, at least at first glance, is, is rather offensive. And uh, today, we come across another hard passage. This one, not so much hard because it is offensive, uh, but hard, difficult, because the, the meaning really isn't made plain or revealed until the end. And even then, it's sort of one of those cliffhanger kind of passages. And so, because that's the way the, the text itself lays out the story, I'll be preaching it in the same manner. And so, if for much of this, it feels a little fuzzy to you, then understand that it does to everyone else in the room as well. And that that's the way the story is laid out. And so um, I want to encourage you to, to stick with me to the end, and then I hope what the passage reveals to us will be plain by that point. This morning we continue in Mark, learning from this ancient document that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the King for all kinds of people. And we'll uncover that through a historical event. If you're new to the Bible, know that uh, this Jesus who we've sung about today and now we'll read about is the center of the Scriptures. And we pray that as you hear God's Word today, that He would become the center of your life. And we Christians have found Him to be a fully sufficient and able Savior. Amen? Look with me, if you would, at verse 1. In those days, so this is linking this back to the previous event. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. They sat them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that they should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went away into the district of Delmanutha. Well, this sure seems like a strange case of deja vu. 
If you flip back in your Bibles to chapter 6, then you'll recall right there in the middle of chapter 6, something very similar happened. Did Mark accidentally hit copy-paste? And no one had the guts to tell him, Mark, you already said that. Well, many modern scholars consider this to be what's called a doublet, meaning that Mark gives us two accounts, similar but not exactly the same, of one ancient historical event. If that were the case, then historically speaking, Jesus would have actually fed one crowd. But then over time, as the story was told and told and told, it became communicated as two separate events. Now, obviously, if that were true, it would raise some really serious questions about the trustworthiness of Mark as a historian, and it would throw inerrancy of all the Bible into question. But the thing I want to ask is, why do some modern scholars assert that Mark told a story and then put lipstick on it and told it again? Well, there's two primary arguments. Number one, the stories, the two stories bear many, many, many similarities. Perhaps uh, later this week when you meet with your gospel community, you can look at those together. What are the things in both stories, Mark 6 and 8, that are the same or very, very similar? Not the least of which is this claim that Jesus took a loaf of bread, in this case seven of them, and broke it again and again and again and again and supernaturally fed thousands of people. That's incredible. Now, that's the first reason is just the sheer number of similarities between these two stories. The second reason is the main reason scholars make this claim. They will say that it is simply unimaginable the disciples could so quickly forget. I'm not kidding. They will say, this event happened in Mark 6, and then Jesus says to him, how are we going to feed this crowd? And it's as though they have never even considered that Jesus could feed a multitude. Looking at chapter 8, verse 4, their question does seem a little bit ridiculous. How can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? They had seen a large crowd of people. They had seen Jesus with compassion miraculously feed them. That's Mark 6. Now only two chapters later, they see another crowd. Jesus is marked with compassion again. And yet they have no clue how God could intervene. In the second incident, when Jesus voices concern about the lack of food, the disciples respond as though there is no possible way that 
the crowd could get enough food to eat. I'm belaboring this because I want you to feel it. It is absurd. Hadn't they just witnessed one of the most amazing, miraculous sights they will ever see in their entire lives? Thank you. <laughs> I agree. It's, it is absolutely astonishing. And so maybe we could put it this way. Who could be so dense as to face a nearly identical situation and react with complete amnesia? Now, frankly, I think it's reasonable that scholars raise this concern. It actually makes sense, in some sense, to say, well, maybe it was just one event. And that's important that we consider because it gets to the heart of what this passage emphasizes. Now, to be clear, my conviction is that Mark recounts two distinct historical incidents. There are similarities, yes, but what's more important than the similarities are the differences. And there are differences. Before we, before we look at them, let me see if I can illustrate the point. If you went this week to the doctor because you had a terrible headache, and the doctor said, well, tell me about your headache, so you walked through it, then we all know at this point, hopefully, that headaches can be caused by lots of different things. And so a headache could be triggered by a brain tumor that needs chemotherapy and radiation. So your doctor might listen for, do they think you're des- does she think you're describing that? And if so, the treatment is chemotherapy and radiation, if it's a large tumor. Oddly enough, I know probably a dozen people that have had those. They're very serious. But wouldn't you want the doctor to find out if it's that and not a migraine? So they... The doctor listens for similarities, yes, but more than that, listens for the differences. Now, if we look at these stories and consider the differences, then it's rather obvious this is two separate events. Now, there are more of them than we have time to go through, but for the skeptic in the room, let me show you a few, okay? In the first feeding... How many people were fed? 5,000. And if you read the story closely, it says 5,000 men. In the second story, how many were fed? 4,000. And if you read closely, it's 4,000 people. Men, women, children. In the first, the men were there one day. In the second... The men were present for three days. The the crowd was present for three days. In the first, there were how many loaves? Five. How many fish? Two. In the second account, 
there were seven loaves and some small unspecified number of fish. In the first, Jesus prayed once over the meal. In the second, Jesus prayed twice over the meal. In the first, 12 baskets were left over. In the second, seven baskets were left over. Now, most important for grasping the significance of why this happened historically twice. In the first feeding in Galilee, Jewish men ate. In the second feeding, in the region of the Decapolis, 4,000 Gentiles ate. Now, that'll be important later in the sermon, so file it away. Two feedings, not one. The reason I've belabored this is I want you to know you can trust your Bible. And second, as we move further into the story, you'll see just how critical it is to believe in not only one historical feeding, but two. Now, that actually becomes clearer as we read on in the rest of the passage. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. (laughs) And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. There were 12 loaves disciples with one loaf. That didn't work. Normally, in a second gathering, I know what not to do. (laughs) Verse 15, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Immediately after the 4,000, they got in a boat, and Jesus took them from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee over to the western side. Now, that means absolutely nothing to us, but to them it meant everything, because they were leaving the region of the unclean Gentiles and going back to the Jewish people, the people who should have known. And immediately upon exiting the boat, the Pharisees accosted Jesus. These religious leaders came not in good faith to learn, but in arrogance to argue. By this point, in in the chronological story of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees were dead set against Jesus. 
They have already made up their mind. He is an imposter, he is dangerous, and he must be done away with. And at the conclusion of the conversation Jesus had with them, it's subtle, but if you look at the movement in the passage, it's clear that Jesus had enough. For all of these chapters in the first half of Mark, Jesus has labored with the Pharisees, teaching them, talking with them, hoping that their hard-heartedness would break and they would learn and they would receive the grace of God. But at this point with him getting in the boat, I think what's being communicated is my patience in this case has run out. And he gets back in the boat and goes back again to the other side. Notice that verse 11 says the Pharisees came seeking a sign. They demanded some kind of testimony from heaven, some kind of shout out from God saying, yes, this is the Messiah that I've sent. Jesus knew that no sign like that would convince them. It wouldn't work. And so he said no sign will be given. He had done plenty of miracles in public, and those had not been enough. You see, the same sun that melts popsicles hardens the clay. For some, their pride had melted away as the gospel of grace fell from the lips of Jesus. But for others, that same message had simply petrified their spiritual hearts. The Pharisees were known for their twisting of God's Word in the Gospels, for their love for their own traditions instead of God, for their tendency to revel in power, and those things predisposed them to reject Jesus. All the evidence in the world would never be enough to convince them. And so Jesus walked away. He walked away to pursue people whose hearts were not yet petrified. But what about the disciples? Now, does this passage paint them as having this stuff figured out? No. Anything but. So what's the difference? Why does Jesus continue laboring with them when he's walked away from the Pharisees? It's clear that they too misunderstood who Jesus is, or at least at this point failed to grasp fully all that Jesus could do and every aspect of his identity. They knew Jesus to be the Messiah, but they did not yet understand really what the Messiah came to do. They knew that Jesus was from God, but it's likely that at this point they hadn't yet grasped that He is God. And yet the steady stream of Jesus' patience continued to flow for them. That's because the steady stream of Jesus' patience for His own 
never runs dry. Every day, Christian, there are fresh mercies flowing for you. Every hour, there is pure patience. Jesus overflows forever with compassion for his own. Now, as you glance back over verses 14 and 15, notice Jesus' concern for his disciples. He believed their lack of understanding had the potential to develop into a spiritual callousness, a hard-heartedness. So Jesus told them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That is, Jesus using a little bit of yeast as an illustration is showing that something small can permeate the whole. And so Jesus is telling the disciples to be careful. The hard-heartedness of the Pharisees that embittered them against him could become their own. Friend, do you recognize that we have the same potential? If we reject increased understanding of Jesus, even after he pursues us over and over and over and over and over, we too can develop a hard-heartedness. Now, case in point for the disciples, right here, he tells them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. When, when someone you really respect gives you a caution, what ought you to do? Listen. But what do the disciples do? Like total buffoons. They think, leaven? Speaking of leaven, I'm hungry. I wonder if when, when we get all over on the other side, there's going to be a Cane's. Because that bread, butter on both sides, that stuff is amazing. And speaking of bread, who forgot the bread? We only have one loaf, and Peter's going to eat it. So we got no loaves. Church, when we fail to recall what Jesus has done in the past, then we won't trust him in the present. And that's exactly what they're doing. They not only failed to remember the first feeding, now literally immediately after the miracle, they're in the boat again. They've seen Jesus twice miraculously multiply food. And they're still stressed out that they don't have enough. It may be easy for us to read these stories and feel baffled by the disciples' failure to comprehend the significance of what they were seeing Jesus do. But I would submit to you that the disciples serve for us merely as mirrors. Look in them and you will see your reflection. Don't we do the exact same? 
We've been faithful in generosity. And then a bill comes we don't know how we're going to pay. Are we filled with confidence God will provide? Or do we panic? That's one tiny little example. Author Paul Tripp shows us how to stop that with a math equation. He says, Jesus' compassion plus Jesus' power equals, Christian, you will have all that you ever need. Jesus' compassion plus Jesus' power equals provisions from God that every legitimate need you have will be met by Him. The disciples at this point failed to apprehend that because they were still coming to believe. They believed, but they were still coming to believe. They didn't yet fully understand who was in the boat with them. They knew He was the Messiah, but they weren't looking for a Messiah who would welcome Gentiles. They knew He was the Messiah, but they weren't looking for a Messiah who principally would be providing them with spiritual change, not physical change. They just didn't get the whole picture. And therefore, that's why from verses 17 to 21, Jesus asks them a series of eight penetrating questions, all building to that last one. Do you not yet understand? Well, understand what? Well, that brings us back full circle to where we started today. But even before that, In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus speaks for the very first time in this gospel, his opening words are, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is what the Jews had longed for. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they'd prayed that God would send the Messiah and the kingdom of God would be present on earth. But what the disciples didn't understand was the nature and scope of that kingdom and who, in fact, the Messiah would be. Jesus came to bring a spiritual kingdom, not a geopolitical one. Jesus came to bring a kingdom that would be comprised of Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews. It would be a kingdom where outsiders who believe, are welcomed. It would be a kingdom where dogs become children, as we said last week. Maybe I could put it this way. Jesus is the Messiah, and He's the Son of God, and He provides sustenance to all who sincerely believe. 
not only to Jews like they expected, but also to Gentiles. That, brothers and sisters, is why it's so critical that historically we see Jesus offered bread to Jew and Gentile alike. Because so often in the Scriptures, bread is a picture, a symbol of God providing for His people. And so, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is saying, come to me, to use the language of John. John quotes Jesus as saying, I am the bread of life. Come to me. Yes, I'll fill your tummies, but that's only relatively good. You'll be hungry again in an hour. (laughs) Come to me that you might experience spiritual feasting that will never, ever leave you hungry again. But Jesus didn't do that just for Jews. In great scandal, he invited the Gentiles to the feast as well. Now, if you're not yet convinced that that's what's going on in this second feeding, there is what may be one more indicator to help us. When Jesus fed the 5,000 men, there were 12 baskets left over. And maybe at the time when we look at Mark 6, you thought, well, that makes sense because there were 12 disciples and Jesus wanted each of them to participate. So one basket for each disciple. Maybe. But when we get to Mark chapter 8, there were seven baskets left over. And we still have 12 disciples. So apparently that wasn't the lesson. So what's going on here? Well, one possible answer is merely fewer people meant fewer leftovers. Maybe. But there are... No specificities in Scripture that are merely ornamental. And so, I think we should ask, why, what odd little detail is this? And what could we draw from it? Is something being symbolized by those numbers? Maybe. I think it seems so, actually. Perhaps... Twelve baskets left over among the Jews point to the kingdom of God being fulfilled as the Old Testament longings for a new and better Israel were met. Namely, twelve baskets, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what would that tell us about the seven Seven baskets left over among the Gentiles point to the kingdom including Gentiles too. Seven represents completeness or perfection or wholeness. Many places in the Bible are like that. Seven days equal a, there's one example, a week, a whole week. Now, Maybe even the seven 
represent the seven great enemies, the Gentile enemies in the Old Testament. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. If there were eight, it would have been the Mosquito Bites. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Those were the folks throughout the Old Testament that were the Gentiles the Jews hated. Jesus' kingdom, brothers and sisters, is a kingdom for every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. All of them are welcome to feast on the bread, the sustenance that Jesus provides. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who provides sustenance to all who believe. Now, what do we do with this? I told you it's a complicated passage. The ending of the passage sort of leaves us hanging. Do you, do you not yet understand? And so I think we're supposed to ask, Mark has left us in this way, so that we would ask, do we understand? Do we understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what's offered in Him? So a couple points to bring this home. Friend, if you know that you are not a Christian, then Realize what's offered to you in this passage. Jesus is offering the spiritual sustenance you need. He's offering you life, peace, mercy, forgiveness, joy. Not an absence of hardship. Christians face junk in everyday life just like you. But he's offering you forgiveness for your sin and a right to sit at the table and feast with the people of God. And if you feel like an outsider, then understand the message of this passage is all the more is the bread offered to you. Won't you turn from sin and trust in him? If you're already a Christian, friend, are you continuing daily to let the sustenance that you're living on spiritually be the person and work of Christ? Or are you gorging on junk food that won't satisfy you? Come to Christ we receive the gospel, we're converted at a particular moment in time, but for the rest of our lives, we still need to come to and feast on that gospel. Because the way you grow up in Christ is the same way you started with Christ. Casting yourself on Him as an unworthy sinner. Receiving grace sufficient for today. Stoke that fire brothers and sisters. And finally, church, 
Let's commit ourselves afresh and anew this morning to grasping that the reason God has placed us here is that we would be a diverse Christian community seeking to glorify God by making disciples and helping other churches. That's why we're here. And so the more people the Lord allows us to do that with, because we live in a transient place, the more people will go out from here to bless other places with this good news that in Jesus there is all the spiritual sustenance we ever need. Amen? That's worth sacrificing for. That's worth investing your time in. That's worth us putting up with each other to work on together. And it's for that I now pray. Father, in some sense, this is a difficult passage because it, it seems at first glance to just say the same thing the last one said, the last feeding. And so we would ask you this morning that as we've considered its meaning, that now you would help us to feel its weight. We are prone to exclude people. And this second feeding shows that everybody who will feast on Christ through repentance and belief is welcome at the table of the people of God. And so we pray that you would help us to not in any way have any prejudices. That people of all skin colors, people who've done all kinds of sins that we ourselves wouldn't do, and yet we're not any better. We've done just as bad. <laughs> and people with very different backgrounds. God, that in your family, all are equal and welcome. And Lord, now as we come to the table to celebrate the Lord's Supper, how fitting, given what we've talked about today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.